This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. They're the they're some of the worst noises. Oh no! Oh, oh! <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And hopefully, you didn't just throw up. Those are. I know that like we really enjoy talking into microphones and mm-hmm. having people listen. But man, I hope we don't make too many terrible mouth noises. <laughs> I yeah yeah I'm really self-conscious of when I say things like like and mm-hmm. you know and uh and and stuff when we podcast and like when I pause and that kind of stuff but yeah hopefully hopefully one people have kind of gotten over that or like made their peace with it and two at least I'm not making terrible mouth sounds yeah <laughs> I don't sound like an octopus rolling through a carton of eggs oh that's oh i would rather have four or five more verbal ticks that i couldn't shake than make any noises like you've pointed out a couple to me and i won't say them out loud or else people will go back and find them and like make a wiki about it but mm-hmm. oh god i'm so glad i don't sound like a cthulhu monster <laughs> andrew this is a bonus episode yeah bonus meaning like extra extra and extra so, read all so about it we're good. recording in the daytime and it's weird congratulations to people who gave us money on patreon because you are the reason why we have mouth sounds in our podcast now <laughs> so usually uh the bonus episodes well not usually but we've we've tried occasionally to uh stretch the boundaries of what we're up to or, or just do some other books that we might not otherwise put on the docket and this week we're doing a double feature, Andrew. We're doing two stories for the price zero of one. <laughs> for the price of infinity, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I read the Those Who Walk Away from Omelus, or The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelus, excuse me. And I don't know mm-hmm. how to pronounce that word. I'll tell you why it's not really a word a little bit later on. Uh, and that's by Ursula K. Le Guin. What did you read, Andrew? Uh, I read The Forbidden Words of Margaret A. by L. Timmel Duchamp or Duchamp. What I think do it's think? Duchamp. 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 I, yeah, um, uh, who knows? Yeah, because we were like kind of skewing a little white guy heavy for January. Yes. <laughs> and so I did a search. I, I uh, did a search of like sci-fi uh, like women. Women who are writing books in sci-fi. Man, this is weird to be doing this at 1230 in the afternoon. Um, and I found this uh, this thing on the Huffington Post uh, by Maddie Crum. Uh, 14 women writers who dom- dominate the universe of sci-fi. And uh, this story was like at the top of it. And then it was only after I, like, I found it and read it that I discovered that like 
she's not a, like a giant in in literature. Like she's certainly written a lot, and the stuff that she's written has a has a following. But mm-hmm. like, I think Ursula K. Le Guin is definitely the bigger name of these two, right? Yeah, and she's continued to crop up as we read uh, latter twentieth century sci fi. Um, she's she was Le Guin was born in twenty nine. I guess we're, let's just do like a mix and match biography section here and it'll, okay. it'll be fun we'll keep it fast and loose uh okay Le Guin was born in 29 so she was uh young enough to be influenced by folks like Philip K. Dick and J.R. Tolkien uh but came before folks like even Neil Gaiman or you know I think she's mostly a contemporary though a little bit older than Margaret Atwood mm-hmm. uh she came up when we were at the Book Riot Live event um, we saw the panel that Margaret Atwood was on. Um, Le Guin came up a couple of times. And so, yeah, she. I definitely I picked one of the more notable stories of hers, the ones who walk away from Omelas, is not your traditional science fiction story, and, and we'll get into that. What were you able to find out about Miss Duchamp, Andrew? Uh, she was born in 1950, and uh, she was the first of three children, and uh, she became a feminist in the early 1970s when she read Kate Millett's Sexual Politics. Uh, but she, I don't know, that that had always kind of been part of her life because her grandmother and, and her mother were uh, very strong figures in her life. And aside from that, like, she just wrote a bunch. She just, she's a writer. And yeah. she wrote a lot of books. I think her website says she started writing fiction, quote, as a joke, and then mm-hmm. just, like, took to it mm-hmm. and just kept churning out stories and pages of stories what does that mean like i'm gonna write this story <laughs> what a joke i don't, what a I don't funny joke <laughs> i wonder if it's uh i don't consider myself a fiction writer i probably wouldn't be very good at it mm-hmm. let me take a stab at putting this idea i have to paper and can i explore it through narrative or maybe she's just writing like fan fiction and like kind of being like, oh, what a, oh, look at my dumb story, guys. Whatever. It's no big deal. I'm just being funny. And then <laughs> and then she discovered inside herself a love for it. I don't know. I'm just kind of projecting. Yeah. As someone who is, has taught some playwriting classes, you know, with uh, the workshop that I'm doing right now, there's a lot of people who are like, ah, I know what I want to write, but I don't think I'm good enough to write it. And like, well, the joke is, is that you just have to write it first and then you'll make it better. That's the joke. Yeah. And I guess humor helps people like ease into a new thing better. Like if, if they project an air of not of not caring that much about it or is like not taking it seriously, then if they get feedback that's bad, they can, I don't know, they can deflect it more easily in their Minds, Andrew, maybe. it sounds like you came of age in the age of irony. I don't know if you, if you, uh, I don't know, are familiar with the internet, perhaps. Uh, I've heard of it. Yeah, I've okay. heard of irony. Uh, I heard that Alanis Morissette song the same as anybody. That song makes me mad. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, and then Deschamps churned out like a bunch of short stories after she had tried to write some mammoth works of fiction, which she did publish but i think she thought that because they were so big she needed to get some short stories out there first so that well people... like she she was writing this manuscript uh literary novel suffused with magic realism and she by the time she'd written 950 pages she realized <laughs> that it didn't really have a point 
and that she needed to figure out more about like narrative structure because otherwise this thing was just going to keep going and going and continue being this big formless word blob, which yeah, I, as sure. a writer, I completely can understand. <laughs> I completely identify with that. Totally. Uh, and then recent recently she, about 10 or 12 years ago, she started a press in Seattle called Aqueduct Press, which I think she uses to kind of shine a light on people writing fiction similar to the things that she's interested in. I don't think it's ex- explicitly fiction either, but, you know, interesting stories that, that need an audience. So for Le Guin, as you said, Andrew, she's certainly the the more notable of the two authors we're talking about today. Uh, I think also just because she has, you know, 20 years on Duchamp. Yeah. Um, she's a multiple Nebula and Hugo Award winner. She started writing at like the age of nine. She was a Fulbright scholar in France, and that's where she met her husband, who's a historian, and they moved back to America in the 50s. Uh, and then from there, it's kind of the long, the the story of her publishing novels for decades and writing a bunch of short stories and uh, other collections. I think it's interesting, uh, her Hainish cycle, which is a couple of different books, including The Left Hand of Darkness, uh, is like, it's a future world where people like humans aren't just on earth they were like put on all sorts of other planets and there isn't space travel like reliable faster than light space travel but they have this thing called the ansible which you might recall from like the orson scott card books andrew i remember that do not i have blocked most of those okay fair enough uh from my mind palace it's actually a thing that Le Guin is credited with coining the term uh and it's a it's like a faster than light telephone or a video phone so that you can communicate through space without there being any sort of delay. So and, Skype. Yeah, it's space Skype. It's Okay. It's wormhole Skype. <laughs> which some, sometimes that's what Skype feels like. Uh but it's yeah, it's wormhole Skype and a lot of other authors have just used it because there isn't a real, you know, we have an analog for it now over the internet, but it's still and we're we're at a point in the world where we're like skyping with dudes on the international space station, uh, but there's still delay. Like you couldn't communicate with other planets. Um, yeah. And those books were influenced by her parents, who were both anthropologists. And here's like a little cool anecdote: her parents, at the turn of the 20th century, worked at the University of California Berkeley with this guy named Ishi, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is regarded as the quote, I say quote because I don't like how this is phrased, last wild Indian in America. Cool. And is he was like 50 years old when he just showed up somewhere foraging for food like near an actual like town. And his tribe was all gone and he'd been alone for like four years, just like approached a town and said, hey, I need help. Um, and then kind of passed on a lot of information about his tribe to those anthropologists. And there's this, like, his, his name just means man because he wouldn't tell anyone what his name was because there was, like, no one left in his culture to say it kind of thing. Okay. Uh, that seems, that idea of cultural encounter and and the friction there seems to inform a lot of the Hainish cycle. So Okay. Um um, had you read any Le Guin before? Because like I no. realized that I had without even. Oh, really interesting. I, I read some of the uh, some of the Earthsea books. No, tell me about those. Is, uh, I have not. It's a, 
it's it, they started in the uh, in the late 60s and then uh, there were two more of them in the 70s and for a while those were just the trilogy and then in the 90s and early 2000s she wrote a few more I only read the first three and it was I didn't read them like as a kid so I don't have the same like spot in my brain that I do for like Tolkien and um, mm. like Lloyd Alexander and like Redwall and all that stuff that I read yeah. while I was like the age that that it's aimed at yeah it's a it's this long running series that she wrote and it's credited among other things with uh introducing the idea of a wizard school Ooh, which i don't know if that idea sounds familiar to you if you can think of of any books no i've never heard of that before do they have about wizard schools um they do but it's just weirdly it's just football (laughs) unmagical football they need a break. It's mm-hmm. like you got to take a break from magic class by doing something utterly mundane. Right. You're like running into people real hard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's get into the ones who walk away from Omalas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this work is described as philosophical fiction more so than it is uh, science fiction. And you'll often see the word plotless tossed around. <laughs> Sure. Next to this book, next to the story. <laughs> so get ready. I uh, I purchased a collection, the Unreal and the Real Selected Stories of Ursula K. Le Guin, Volume mm-hmm. Two, Outer Space and Inner Lands. It's a long title for a book, but uh, this story is called "The Ones Who Walk Away from Omalas," and it's variations on a theme by William James. Now, Andrew, could you imagine a city that was just like full of happiness? Like, what would that look like to you a city full of happiness where everyone is just happy it's it's i the happiness is in the story of a degree that it is unbelievable i yeah i'm thinking either it's like Candyland, okay or we only think it's happy and then when we spend any time there we realize all the ways in which it's actually a terrible place great so you're primed for this story let's get yeah okay (laughs) So the the story starts out, it is the summer festival in Omalas, and it's a bright-towered city by the sea. And there's not a real, there's no real setting other than that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it starts out, a bunch of people are happy going around, people of all ages. There are horses, um, and the narrator who talks to us directly is quick to point out that the horse is the only animal who has adopted our ceremony as his own. And is like real excited about running a race for the summer festival. I, just, I don't know why horses are on board with what we're up to, but <laughs> I, I would say that that's accurate to real life. Um, and the narrator says, "Joyous? How is one to tell about joy? How describe the citizens of Omalas?" There's this unreliability of the narrator, or or purposeful non-specificity that runs throughout the story. Like, you can feel, let's say it's Ursula K. Le Guin, even though it's not, that she's trying to wrap our minds around something that is purposefully obscure. Have you encountered that before in stories where it's like, it's almost, it's almost like not showing the monster in a horror film, mm-hmm. where to to put words to it makes it too literal for the for the point that's being made? Yeah. Yeah, I've run into that. I mean, I don't have any other things to add. But okay. Sure. It's, okay. It's, I guess it's it's quintessentially Lovecraft. 
there, little bit. There are some elements of like n- not being specific so as to to make readers like connect the dots themselves. There's some of that in the story that I read too. So I, I, it's a pretty common literary device, I guess. Yeah, I was just making sure you had we had a frame of reference for it. Yes, sure. Uh, so they were not simple folk, and the, and the story starts out. I thought it was going to be this like treatise on what true happiness is and and maybe it's that but it's a little bit different uh she talks about how in our society today we have a bad habit of considering happiness as something rather stupid that only pain is intellectual and only evil interesting uh and i i i see a point there right like something that it was ironic when something like the king's speech one best picture because that story was happy as all get out Mm -hmm. and most of the time like this year it's gonna be that time leonardo DiCaprio got eaten by a bear maybe like it's not happy stories is that really gonna win i don't know i'm just for the sake of argument okay usually we do not look at something that's unbearably happy and say that is capital a art that is high quality human experience that i need to have for myself Mm mm-hmm it's it's perceived as shallow, right? Ignorance is bliss, etc. Yeah. Uh, and so she goes on at length that uh, homeless is this place that you can't even believe how happy it is. She does say that if uh, it strikes you as goody goody, you can add an orgy. Like just <laughs> if <laughs> if in your mental picture homeless isn't making enough sense and it's too much like a fairy tale, uh, add an orgy to it. Who is telling you to do this? The narrator who's describing the city to you. All right. Uh, She also says that there's no guilt. And at first she thought... That sound, that's... Okay, you just lost me. (laughs) That's totally unrealistic. Okay, hold on to that. That's useful. Uh, She also said that at first there wouldn't be any drugs, but that's puritanical. So there's this thing called Druze, D-R-O-O-Z, which sounds like an energy drink. Mm-hmm. or a reverse energy drink uh that basically sounds like really good pot like everything feels better you get a little sleepy it's super sticky super sticky and you start and making dank. dumb jokes yeah yeah they don't fight but they celebrate the victory of life like they don't like they don't play football for example i guess who knows she gets to a point where she's described the festival everyone's having a good time and she says do you believe me do you accept the festival the city the joy no? Then let me describe one more thing. What do you think that one more thing might be, Andrew? Something terrible. Yep. That it exists in a snow globe and it's not real. Nope. In a basement under one of the public buildings, there is a room. It is. It has a locked door, no window. It has dirty mops and a rusty bucket. And Ooh, the floor is bucket. dirty. And it's like three paces wide. What do you think's in that room, Andrew? The monster. Not a monster. A, a kid. Pers- a person. A oh, kid okay. who is 10 years old but is like so enfeebled as to look sick. Is he one of those kids, the creepy like Twilight Zone kids who controls everything with his own mind or something? What's his deal? Okay. The kid is feeble-minded. Uh, it like sits there. It's, it's so dumb and malnourished that it is afraid of the mops. And it doesn't have a sense of time. Uh, and the only thing it knows that happens is occasionally someone will come in and, like, kick the kid to make it stand up. 
They will look at it with like disgust and fright. They will feed it, and it will say, "I will be good. Please let me out. I will be good." And they never answer. And I. So what version of like what version of Doctor Spock are these parents reading that this is the way that they're raising this kid? It's not just there's only one kid like this in the entire city, and everyone in the city knows that it's there, and they also know that the rules are. If that kid gets taken out of that room, then all of their happiness goes away and all of their prosperity is gone. Sounds like a bummer. It is a bummer. And to so the quote is, to exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in Omalas for that single small improvement, to throw away that happiness of thousands for the chance of the happiness of one, that would be to let guilt within the walls indeed. So... So this is this is what the author says to make this city more credible, which is like it's this weird narrative device where the narrator is adding things like the orgy or whatever to the town to make it seem more real, even though it's purposefully vague. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's one more thing to add, which is at times someone will decide that this is too much and they can't handle it. So okay. they make sense. And this is how the story ends. They leave Omelas. They walk ahead into the darkness and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist, but they seem to know where they are going. The ones who walk away from Omelas. Do you believe that this city exists, Andrew? Um, I If I was faster, I would have a joke about it being like Detroit or something, but <laughs> no, 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 no. What? That's terrible. Okay. What? No. Yes. I don't know. Does it matter what my answer is? I'm just wondering what what it's what the what your reaction to it is. It's this idea of the scapegoat, right? I, mean, I guess if a city like that existed, I would believe that every once in a while people would be like, "This is nonsense. I'm out of here." Yes, that is certainly true. But the story can't tell you where that is, which I think is also important. Mm-hmm. The, the I think this metaphor of a child in a basement at whose cost, you know, at whose suffering is, is the cost of everything else that we get to enjoy has like a real wide variety of applications as a metaphor. I've actually found an article by David Brooks in the New York Times. I don't love everything that he writes. Okay. Uh, he writes well enough. Um, so I, I was kind of interested to find that he had he had summarized some thoughts on it. So I want to give him credit because this certainly helped me have an opinion on the story. It's uh, it's a story about exploitation, right? And we were talking about like smartphones or whatever, how every once in a while the news cycle will come back around to like the human cost of making that technology. Right. Right. And like, what is the name of, what's the name of that factory? Like Foxconn? Is that what yeah, it is? Sure. So yeah. like, and that's not, it's not a new story. That's as old as the industrial age. Uh, and then the other version of that story is even older with like serfs and slaves and, and whatnot. But that's, that's a child in the basement. Right. Well, and the interesting thing about the way that those stories are covered usually is that, 
the people writing about how great the phone is are not the people who are reporting on the labor conditions. Like you usually, there's a divide of church and in, state there. In most yeah. in most reviews and things that you're gonna read, like the conditions under which the thing was made does not like come up. No, <laughs> it's certainly as part does not. of like the evaluation of the of the product. And then I don't know. That's it's not it's not a great state of affairs. Yes, certainly. Yeah, I have uh, no, I have no defense of it really. It's no, and I'm not it. saying that there should be it. It's, I think that's why this story is as powerful as it is. Um, the subtitle of it is that it, that it's a variation on themes from William James, who was a philosopher at the turn of the 20th century, and that's kind of what inspired Le Guin to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, something about if we know that happiness has a cost and prosperity has a cost. But to be confronted with so clear a cause for that, like yeah, what? this just makes the scapegoat really obvious. Like I can't, I can't go and like change the entire supply chain for the tech industry, but I can go and let little torture Timmy out of his torture basement. Yes, but if you but if you extrapolate the metaphor, like, and then you just lose all of the the prosperity and and good things that you've gained by putting Timmy in the torture basement. Mm -hmm. Would you do that? Could you do that? Right. Yeah. I I mean, I I guess it would depend on what exactly the ramifications of taking him, taking him out of the tortured basement. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, Brooks, Dave Brooks also mentions that it's another reading of it is more strictly a challenge to utilitarianism, you know, saying that a human is, we, we, generally profess that a person is not an end to a means like i think he says something about like we don't say it's okay to just like take someone's organs or like have babies to then use their organs for our own means even though there's plenty of science fiction about how that's super gross Mm -hmm. and yet uh, not at a like literal level people get the raw end of the deal for other advancements and benefits all the time Right. Like what is prestige but the exclusion of other people? Yeah. What is the success, the successful business turnaround of a company, but the layoff of a bunch of moms and dads? Right. Mm-hmm. And that those are those can are they're not arguments that are like really nuanced or anything. There's a there's an element of a straw man argument to some of those. Well, and then the the, the like balance between the cost and the benefit is different in every in every case, too. But. Yes. Yeah, usually, I mean, usually the way we've got things set up for somebody to succeed, a bunch of other people have to fail, like whether they know that they've failed or not. And like whether every not, time, yeah. every time People Magazine nominates a new sexiest man alive, like that's another year that I didn't win the award. I know. And I've been meaning to send you my annual, uh, like, condolences card. Mm-hmm. I've just been a little behind. It's just a giant cookie that says sorry on it. <laughs> And that cookie is what's preventing you from climbing the rankings. Yeah, it's <laughs> man. That's a pretty. I would read that sci-fi dystopia story. Uh, the other, there's another like more explicit reading of this story that I've seen crop up in the in a couple articles written over the past ten years, is how something like this this metaphor pertains to the war on terror, which I thought was obvious. Like after I read it, I was like, well, that's an obvious comparison to make. Mm-hmm. Um, Things like drone strikes, Gitmo, 
black sites and torture being our various you can read the child in a basement as something other than like the literal human cost but what is the moral cost of something like quote-unquote safety or defense yeah yeah um and you know what are we willing to to give up to get Though, I mean, X. in this case, there's an obvious, like, like the kid in the basement definitely, definitely is making everybody else happy. Whereas yes. we don't, we don't know if all the people down in Guantanamo are definitely, like, if they weren't down there locked up, they definitely, definitely would be nuking, like, nuking our dads right now. Well, so then what the story, what the story then offers is leaving this city where that is a given. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't spell that out for you and it actually prevents you. I'm I'm really seduced by stories that present a metaphor that is basically a curtain behind which we're not allowed to peek. You know, rather okay. than rather than offer a solution to this problem of Omelas, it just says, I mean, people could leave, but I can't even imagine what that is. I think that's where this has useful comparisons to something like the war on terror where it's like that it becomes, that becomes a circular argument that I think the reason why uh, we haven't solved it yet. Well, and we also, persists. we also also get so used to things being a way that uh-huh, uh-huh. it gets harder to imagine what it would be like if they weren't that way. And that's so like, maybe yeah. there, there probably was a time before they locked torture Timmy in the torture basement where like the way of life was just like you take the good, you take the bad, you uh-huh. take them both, and then you have the facts of life. But now that torture Timmy's in the torture basement, and we've all gotten used to him being in the torture basement, we don't we, like we're we're so uncomfortable with that idea that we can't even like conceive of going back to it. And there's this really uh, this will be like the last thing I think to talk about with this story. There's this turn just before the end where the narrator talks about how opinion has shifted such kind of what you're just saying andrew uh they say of torture timmy this is terrible uh Mm. its habits are too uncouth for it to respond to humane treatment indeed after so long it would probably be wretched without walls about it to protect it and darkness for its eyes and its own excrement to sit in which is just that like well it's been going on so long we probably shouldn't change it like it's probably he's probably better down there if we took him out, he wouldn't even know what to do. He wouldn't know how to read. He'd be sad about it. <laughs> like, he wouldn't know how to take accept a hug. Like, we'd just scare him with all of our happiness. Might as well just leave him in the basement. Might as well not fix the basement. But, I mean, do they have to bring a new torture Timmy down when the old one gets worn out? Or? That is not explicitly stated. Okay. Because it's, it's, it seems like it would be easier just to, like, make a clean break. Just, where, like, just the old, where get the old rid of the basement? Timmy, well, the old Torture Timmy dies, and then instead of finding a new one, Torture Tommy, they just stop throwing kids in the torture basement. Yeah, but then Omelas doesn't get to keep being Omelas. All right. This beautiful, wonderful city of orgies and, and whatever. <laughs> orgies and Drews will go away. Uh, yeah, so it's a it's an interesting evolution of, of a couple different... Uh, notions of what the scapegoat is uh that's also turns up in dostoevsky but Le Guin said that she like knew about it but she never wanted to go back and reread dostoevsky because mm-hmm. he's dostoevsky she also said that she got the name omelas from reading uh a sign for salem 
it was like a road sign that said Salem comma O and she just like put it in reverse. Okay. So when someone says where she gets her ideas, she says from forgetting Dostoevsky and reading road signs backwards, naturally, where else? It's <laughs> uh, a good Andrew, place to get ideas. Yeah. I like that. Let's talk about your story. Let's talk about what you read. What is this story okay. called again? It's I called the, the Forbidden Words of Margaret A. And okay. it's not supposed to be Margaret Atwood. For a minute, I was like, "Are they? <laughs> is this like a speculative fiction where Margaret Atwood is thrown in prison because of things that she said? No, it isn't. It's not that. Um, all right. So the deal with this story, it's less, I guess it's less sci-fi and more like speculative futured fiction. Sure. And, and I know that like sci-fi and that genre have like a complicated relationship. And Margaret Atwood actually is one of those, is one of those things where she doesn't like being necessarily lumped in with science fiction mm. authors just cause she writes speculative fiction. But can I, anyway, can I read a quote from Le Guin that I think actually res- relates to that? You can do that. Great. I mean, I thought we were done with your thing. Well, but, sure, but I no, think if, this I didn't is know just that they were on my time. That's fine. Come on. No, whatever. I didn't know they were so related. That's all. Okay. She's, she says that the task of science fiction is not to predict the future. Rather, it contemplates possible futures. Writers may find the future appealing precisely because it can't be known. A black box where anything at all can be said to happen without fear of contradiction from a native. Mm-hmm. That seems to be what you're talking about. Yeah. Can I like... Can I like do my story now? Well, I just prepared extra stuff. <laughs> People like it when we do the research and when we have things to say. They also like it when we fight. So this is great. This is great radio. <laughs> Read your story, dumbo. Let's go. All right. So this this the forbidden words of Margaret A. It is written as like a like a news article. It's written in in the tone of like some somebody has gone and seen a thing and is now writing about it in retrospect. So okay. it's I guess maybe a sort of epistolary novel. It's not like a letter, but it is like a like an article. It's like a fake primary source. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and so this this uh, unnamed uh, female journalist is uh, writing this thing for uh, for the National Journalist Association for the Recovery of the Freedom of the Press, huh? Uh, which lays a little bit of groundwork into like what kind of stuff we're dealing with. So the deal is this woman, Margaret A said a bunch of stuff (laughs) and that stuff was so incendiary and so divisive that it caused a bunch of civil unrest. And then they passed an amendment to the constitution that said that Margaret A can't say things anymore. <laughs> like anything? Yeah. Like her her like written works need to be purged and then she's put in this little this solitary confinement. So she can't and like all access to her is closely guarded by the government and like she she can't she can't say things anymore. And the story has so far not told us what those things were. Well, the story does not tell you what those things are because Cool, it, cool, cool, cool. It leans really heavily on the unreliability of uh, of memory. Great. And so not only does this uh, young woman not like remember specifically what like the, the specific things that Margaret A was saying, because at the time, like she was, I, I think the setup that I read on uh, on uh, how do we decide to pronounce the author's name? Duchamp. Duchamp. Duchamp? Let's Duchamp? say Duchamp. <laughs> um the setup says that she was like 19 when when this constitutional amendment was passed so it's like she didn't know that this was going to happen she didn't know to like hang on to this stuff because it was un- inconceivable that 
like there would be an amendment to the constitution passed about her <laughs> to tell this one lady that she couldn't talk anymore. Okay. But the government also does not want her to become a martyr mm. because they're really like, I guess whatever it was that she was saying was really, really like it meant a lot to a lot of people. Hmm. And so, and, and so in the, you get little glimpses of the world that this is created. Like there are activists who think this was a good idea and some people call them anti-free speech activists. And then there are people who think that this was a bad idea and they're, you know, they're free speech activists and it's, yeah, it's, it's, our world, but very slightly skewed because of this one lady. Sure. So to walk this line between like throwing her in prison or like killing her and martyring her or whatever, and like letting her speak to the public, the government lets a journalist a month, I think, come in with like a crew and ask her some like mundane questions and show like photos and video of her. Like, showing that she exists, but basically not letting her say anything. Okay, so as to attempt to diffuse the power of locking her up while also diffusing the power of her speaking at all. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Trying to find that middle ground. And and the government, for its part, believes that eventually, you know, like, kids will grow up not having heard Margaret A's stuff and they'll all... They'll Just all, forget. Like, for, forget about her. But in, in reality, the uh, writer of this report puts forward the idea that the forbidden fruit is it tastes like tastes the, the best. I would say and so. And the kids actually, they're like, why did we lock this lady up? Because not only like they don't remember her, but they also don't quite believe the stories of the unrest that she had created that made her incarceration. That's smart. Okay. Uh, necessary in the first place. And so it's presented as kind of an inevitability that Margaret A will eventually be released. Yes. And that one thing that the writer of this report hopes to accomplish by writing it is um letting the world know that she's still in there and she's still full of beans. <laughs> she's and she's going to be okay if she can live long enough to get out. What is the how specific does the story get about what the government is? Is it just a big thing that moves around and does stuff? Is there a president who's been perfect who's been personally offended? It's, does that I mean, not it's, matter? It's the government and you hear about individual figures, but mostly it's like aside from like guards and like the administrator of whatever little prison thing this is like you don't you don't run into many of them. There is a point where it says that Margaret A, like for the last 15 years that she's been incarcerated, her name has been more recognizable than the names of any of the presidents that have sat in the last 15 years. OK, that's good. Which is supposed to give you some. uh some context into just how famous this lady is sure like because like everybody knows who the president is right like pretty much that's one of the questions they ask you when you like come up from fainting right right it's like like, who's the how many fingers am i holding up who's the president can i have five (laughs) dollars and if you've and if they've forgotten that you asked that the first time you're out like ten dollars mm-hmm just keep running that game that's good job the amnesia scam man emts they're just, scam artists. They're just grifting people. They're gonna take right. your money, take your organs. They're gonna get everything, and they're gonna leave you. They're gonna leave you in a bathtub full of ice. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. So so she's so she's maybe gonna get out. No, she's oh. not gonna get out. The point of the story is like the the lady who's writing it is one of the journalists who was let in to see Margaret A. Oh, okay. For like one of the scheduled visits. How does that go? And so. 
to make herself even eligible, she's like intentionally kind of sanitized herself, tried tried to like keep away from things that she thinks the government might consider controversial. She she does not have a uh, like instant recall of speech. Like she can't recall things that people actually said. Well, there's a there's a specific word for people who can do that, right? Who have uh, like autodidactic memories, but for words autodidacts right um that's close enough i think i i use that term to refer to anybody who knows uh like every song lyric they've ever heard whether or not that's <laughs> accurate i know a couple people like that and that's the word i use so. what's the word for people who only can remember the lyrics to songs that they hate <laughs> you <laughs> yeah okay great <laughs> so she's her whole career like up to this point has been kind of built around eventually getting to see margaret a and she's like sure she's done this research that says you know all the guards who have been assigned to her like even though they're just observing her making the small talk they inevitably quit after like a year or two Hmm. and they don't go back into into guard work like they just they quit entirely so there's some there's like just enough there to suggest that the way that she's speaking and like the things that she says, even though she's like her words can't make it out to the public unfiltered and she's not allowed to talk about anything but small talk. Like the things that she's saying and the way that she's saying them must still have some intrinsic power to them. What is the is there any implication of what those guards are going off to do? Are they like no. starting bands? Are they becoming hippies? Are no. they OK? They're just not guards anymore. Like they just cannot abide by their duty. something yeah something happens in the course of their guard duty that like disillusions them or, or changes them in some way and they and they go off but again it's kind of kept intentionally vague sure to uh to build to like build the the tone and the yeah. setting that the author's going for mm-hmm. um so she she goes and she gets strip searched and like you, you can't you can't record anything on your own equipment like everything needs to be reviewed by the guards on your way out all the different people like were kept in solitary confinement for 48 hours afterwards so they couldn't like collectively reassemble like the entire conversation that was had oh okay and so the other thing where the um the unreliability of memory comes in is like we don't get direct quotes from margaret a we just get like paraphrasing based on what the author and like the production crew that went in with her can recall and there's like the answer to one question about her like missing her kids that she says, what is it? It's kind of a, I feel like it's kind of a cop out, like even going for the, <laughs> even the if mis- you're going for the, like the, the unreliability of memory, I think that it's, I think it's, it's a little like much. Okay. So, uh, such was the complexity and unexpectedness of her answer that I'm afraid I cannot vouch for the accuracy of my paraphrase. <laughs> Okay. She was she gave me an answer that was so cool that I don't remember anything about it. That makes sense. Well, what Does it? Yeah. <laughs> like if you went into it so okay, you you go to interview like Joe Biden or something. That sounds great. He has a great smile. Okay. You're going to interview Joe Biden. You ask him a question about like why he didn't run for president or about like how loss has affected his life and you're kind of I, I, when you go in to interview people, a lot of the times you ask questions that you think are going to get a good response mm-hmm. and you think you have some idea of what the response is going to be. Usually. But say Joe Biden gives you something that's so 
like so beautiful that it makes you like weep into your notepad. Uh huh. But then you have to go like you can't, you can't write it down. You have to go sit in a room by yourself for a couple days before you can even try to write anything about it. Like, would you for, would you just totally forget <laughs> the thing that he said? <laughs> I I don't I wouldn't like forget. to the point where you couldn't even paraphrase it. Well, doesn't okay. So the reporter doesn't even attempt to paraphrase it. Uh, such was the complexity and unexpectedness of her answer that I am afraid I cannot vouch for the accuracy of my paraphrase. Cannot vouch for the accuracy of it, but does she not then go on to paraphrase it? Sort of. Uh, not really. I don't know. I mean, kind of talks around it. I would probably, in that instance, if he bro- if he gave me something that was like devastatingly beautiful and moving or some foreign policy insight that was absurdly complex i would probably be reduced to describing the feeling of hearing it and or maybe or maybe it would be like a kind of thing where you're you try to like retell a story or a joke or something and you're like well i'm not doing it right yeah i'm not conveying the thing and it's that's that's happened on this show actually before (laughs) probably like this episode And there is a footnote to this, too. And indeed, our joint attempt to reconstitute this answer resulted in such acrimony that in the end, we'd finally agreed not to discuss it at all. Oh, that's funny. So that's acrimony between the reporters? Yeah. So that, okay, that's cool. Because that creates this, ah, this is smart. Duchamp's smart. That's good. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty smart story. And honestly, like, it's a, it's, you Google the name of the story, The Forbidden Words of Margaret A., and it's a PDF like on her site, and it's fourteen pages long. So like, huh. go read it. It's pretty good. How, is that um, kind of yeah? What happens next? Where does it go? Well, so Margaret A's answers like she's she, you journalists can't visit with Margaret A more than once. She doesn't feel like this interview is going great in the moment <laughs> because Margaret A like obviously sees her as like some kind of puppet of this entire huge system that's been created to incarcerate her and keep her from having opinions sure like there's no there's nothing you can do in the space of like 15 minutes to convince margaret a oh no i'm cool like you you get some yahoo in here every month to interview you but like i'm the i'm the cool one who's gonna be who like gets it did you just say yahoo yeah yahoo proceed okay and in the course of her answers, like Margaret A's small talk that she's talking about, she manages to call into question like the whole point of journalism, basically. Oh, neat. Okay. Because there's been so much self-censorship that this young woman has like imposed upon herself and that like anybody who's going to get in to see Margaret A has to impose upon themselves that like, what are you even doing? Like what? Yeah, you have to check like a lot if you're, at the if door, you're being right? So you, you have to check a lot at the door, and also you can't have like a history of anything. Mm. So you have to be so squeaky clean and like free of government suspicion that they'll let you in because they're like they're not going to let people sneak in who they think are going to be able to like subvert precisely the, this law, yeah, or whatever. And oh. like not only that, but but this author's this journalist's attempt to publish that sort of thing in the story after gets her like blackballed from journalism because nobody wants to make the government that mad. Yeah. Yeah. Basically is the, is the long and short of it. So it's, it's, it's this big thing about, about self, not like the government doesn't have to censor everything. No, 
like explicitly if if it just like if it does the right things it can get this industry to kind of censor itself and i think that to a to some sad extent happens in like actual journalism mm-hmm. especially in like the cable news era where it's all about sound bites and press releases and and circuses rather than like substantive stuff you know there are reasons beyond just coverage that influence coverage like there's reasons beyond like the questions you're asking that dictate what you cover and how you cover it mm-hmm. and some of that's you know now it's like page views and clicks and get them clicks you know viral videos and gifs and snapchats or what yeah, i'm just you're just saying buzzwords now but go on with your point uh, yeah <laughs> but just there there is reason to dismay at the commercial influences behind well yeah there's there i mean that's that's been a criticism of journalism i think as long as it's been like a thing totally totally giving people what they want to read without also giving them like their vegetables like the stuff they (sighs) should be reading the stuff that actually matters yeah there's a crossover to art there too Um, yeah it was interesting the Um, philly the philly inquirer just uh the guy who owns the news here in philly he owns Basically, he owns the news. He does own the news. Uh <laughs> he just set up a nonprofit institute that would then pay for the newspapers because they're not self-sufficient as commercial entities. Yeah. Which then means that you get like grant-funded journalism, which does exist, but not on not on such a large scale. Yeah. And well, then well, that has the its thing- own like catch 22s right yeah right because imagine if that guy decides oh i don't like that thing that you posted yeah like and also i give you a lot of money so like maybe consider changing it i'm not gonna make you change it but like eh, maybe think about it yeah it's not maybe think about it there's a lot of ways in which the nonprofit world is great and then there are some ways that it is not as different from the corporate world as people think yeah um Sorry, go back to Margaret A. Do we ever get a greater sense of like what the heck she said or or how does she feel about this? I don't know. I mean, everything is so aggressively controlled and like sanitized. Margaret A. is not like broken. That's one okay. point okay. That you're supposed to take away from it. And there's also, I mean, there's there's something, there's a little bit in here that doesn't really get to anything because she doesn't, like the journalist, the white journalist doesn't feel appropriate asking it, but like... Margaret A is a black lady and all her guards are white and like what's the racial component there but she doesn't even she thinks about it and then doesn't even get around to asking it because she she doesn't have a lot of time she's already feeling off her footing and she is not sure that she'll get an answer so she just doesn't even she huh. doesn't even address it which I guess could could be a self-censorship point certainly too. yeah but like the here's a paragraph from the summary that, that's like the nut of the of the story Um, Second, my experience doing a Margaret A. photo op suggests that as journalists, we need to question the conflation of the government's contextualization with the parameters of objectivity and professional standards, especially when such such contextualization demands the obliteration not only of words, but of facts. Journalists currently work in an environment in which they're asking even so simple a question as what would be what would the harm be in showing a shot of a bathtub can lead to charges of a subversive lack of objectivity. The quote-unquote limited censorship of Margaret A.'s words has thus demonstrably altered journalist definition of objectivity and professional standards. Uh, J-A-T-R-O-F members, and that's the the journalist, you know, the freedom of, yeah. of the press thing that I mentioned earlier. Uh-huh. 
I feel certain, will want to consider the cost of themselves and the profession of their continued submission to the principle of self-censorship the Margaret A. Amendment has so clearly spawned. Woof. Yeah. What is it? The whole thing is kind of written in this. In this, I was just going to ask, what is it like reading that kind of view from nowhere? kind of language. (laughs) Like it does. It does read like a pretty dry, like research paper or something. Sometimes not. Not to say that that's bad. I mean, it's it's obviously what um, what she intended when she wrote it, and she nails it. I think, but. Yeah, in the same way that Omelas, it reads like a fable. It reads like a it's it's someone telling you a fable and interrupting it along the way, which is yeah. which is purposeful to that story. What was it? I don't know. Do you have like any journalistic personal responses to this story, Andrew, that we haven't covered yet? I mean, people, it's it's rough, right? Because people do do this, and like in my industry, so much of it is based on access journalism. Sure, sure. And you're not going to get official access if you, I don't know, if you... If if you don't play ball? Yeah, but like, so what what you end up trying to do is like finding this middle ground where you say what you think, but you don't like, you maybe even like unintentionally sanitize it or like, or or worry overly about being like even handed about it. Like I, I wouldn't just want to like shoot off some opinion of something without being able to back it up with a bunch of facts, but which in a way is good, but in, in another way, like kind of can stifle the discussion a little bit. But that can also, yeah, but the logical end of uh, opinions without factual basis is like hateful comment threads, right? No, I mean, that's, yeah, that's totally true. But, um, I don't know. It sounds like you're in Omelas, Andrew. Sounds like you're in Omelas. Sounds like there's a torture to me. Basically everything sucks. Oof. That's not true. I mean, I, no. I think that I think that a lot of people do good work, and I try my best to do good work. And if if my experience, I guess, with the companies that I work with has been that they respect my like knowledge, and they just like they know that I'm not gonna mm, mm-hmm. say say stuff that has no basis in fact, and that's more important than me like being a relentless cheerleader. Sure, or a relentless like dirt like muckraker right right right. and but that's not like that's not the case with all writers that's not the case with all companies like i can i can only speak for myself like i do think about this a lot and try very very hard to say what i think and then like if i happen to also get access like that's fine but if i don't like i'm gonna live and and yeah figure it out anyway Hmm. yeah Yeah. i don't know all right so that's that story Short stories are, especially these speculative fiction, speculative fiction ones, are like welcome to thoughtful bummer town. I didn't mean yeah. to bring us down like that. Hey, why don't you why don't you reexamine every aspect of your life, chump? <laughs> what are you complicit in? I'm a speculative fiction short story. <laughs> if you want to tell us what you're complicit in. Uh, you can email us at overduepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter uh, or Facebook using the username overduepod. That's facebook.com slash overduepod and twitter.com slash overduepod on the Micro Machine Man. You can also go to our website. Andrew, what's on our website? If you go to overduepodcast.com, which is our website, uh, you can find iTunes, RSS, and Stitcher links. Those are all ways to subscribe to the show. And get new episodes when they drop, uh, usually every Monday uh, for bonus episodes. It's just like whenever we put them up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if you subscribe in iTunes, do take a minute to rate and review us, which a lot of you continue to do. We we keep riding this wave of like a few a week 
it's that really I think fun. is great um, because like we talk to each other about pretty much every individual one. Uh-huh. And yeah, like to the people who say, oh, you read every one. Here's this book I suggested. Yeah, I saw what you said. <laughs> I saw you. I'm complicit in your iTunes review. I saw what you did. Um, and we've also got links to uh, HeadGum, our podcast network. We've got links to our Patreon page. Uh, the Patreon project that we that we run is a way that uh, that we like fund the show. Uh, we pay for books. We pay for equipment. Uh, we pay for other things. Craig, this episode would not exist without patrons. That is correct. I, we could have recorded to, it anyway, but we wouldn't be releasing it on the schedule that we are and wouldn't have felt free to kind of experiment as we have uh, without some patrons. And folks who have either increased their pledge or pledged to our campaign since our last bonus episode include Mona, Graham, MCF, Amy, Angela, Rebecca, Sophie, and Margaret. Thank you all so much. Uh, we've got some stuff in the works for the Patreon campaign, so keep an eye out on that in the coming weeks. Yeah, we keep saying that, but like we keep inching forward on that and like the merch store project and a bunch of stuff. Like it's it's a lot of work, and it's like come and fits and starts. Like we've had to range it around other stuff, but I am really excited about some of the stuff that we've that we've cooked up, thought of. So yeah, look for that soon. I hope sooner rather than later. Yeah, um, I think that's it. Recommend the Hi, show everybody. to people. Like. We, we talk a lot about social media, but we don't talk enough about just like recommending it to someone who likes books or handing an episode about someone's favorite book to them. And that seems to have been a great way to get people to listen to the show. So thanks to those who've already done it and get on it, those who haven't. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back on Monday. And until then, thanks for listening. Try to be happy. I think I said thanks for listening like three times. It's fine. We'll edit it out. Post. That was a headgum podcast.